Three months ago, my wife Emily and I went through an awful experience that I'm sure many of you can relate to. Three months ago, we went flat hunting in Edinburgh. It was truly dreadful. We trekked around the city for eight hours in the rain. Lots of viewings were cancelled right at the last minute. None of the flats looked anything like the pictures. You get the idea. But eventually we found ourselves in a flat that fit the bill perfectly. And we asked the estate agent, how do we apply? She then began to ask us a number of questions about our finances, and let's just say our answers weren't that satisfactory. She tells us to apply anyway. You never know, she says. We leave deflated. The one flat we like, and we're never going to get it. But we apply anyway. The next day we get a phone call. We reviewed your application with the landlord, and the flat is yours if you still want it. Right there and then, on the phone, to our disbelief, they gave us their word the flat was ours. Our initial reaction was the doubt that they meant to give the flat to us. They must have got the wrong number. Let's not get our hopes up. But later that day, we went to the estate agent and we signed the tenancy agreement. And after that, our doubts were gone. The promise they had made on the phone was now confirmed. Our skepticism was no more. We had it in writing and we knew one day soon we would get the keys and move into the flat. I'm sure at some point in your life, you've doubted whether someone is going to keep their promises. Unfortunately, we know too well that human beings are unreliable. And when it comes to the big things, like buying a home or entering into business with someone, or maybe you've been offered a new job, we will often seek assurances. We will want that promise to be confirmed with a contract, with consequences for the other party if they break their promise. Otherwise, we will think twice about moving forward. But what about when it comes to God? Let me ask you this evening, have you ever doubted that God is gonna keep his promises? When thoughts of doubt creep into our minds, when we are hit with something that knocks us off our feet and makes us wonder if God even cares about us, how do we know that God is gonna keep his promises? What can we hold on to when our faith is shaken? What gives us the confidence to keep moving forward with God? Well, in Genesis 15, God is giving Abram the assurances he needs to keep moving forward in faith just when he'd started to doubt God's promises again. Even though God is fully reliable, God makes a covenant with Abram and puts his promises in writing. And in the same way, God has made a covenant with us in Jesus Christ. We too can trust God's promises in every circumstance and have the confidence to move forward in faith. But before we look at what the text has to say to us, let's quickly remind ourselves of the story of Abram so far. We got to a point in Genesis where things got so bad, we started wondering if God was ever gonna do something to fix this broken world. Things were going from bad to worse. God showed his judgment on sin by destroying the world in a flood and then scattering humanity at the Tower of Babel. But just as we were beginning to wonder, the camera zooms in on a man called Abram, and we soon find out that hope is not all lost for humanity. God speaks to Abram, and in his grace, he says, go to the land, I will show you. He also promises Abram that his barren wife will give birth to a son, and that he is going to make him into a great nation. 
and that he will bless him and bless all the peoples of the earth through him. So Abram takes God, God at his word and follows him. But since then, following God hasn't always been plain sailing, has it? In fact, his faith in God's promises has been a bit up and down. Straight after Abram obeys God, we saw Abram's sin and lack of trust in God in Egypt. Abram told Pharaoh his wife was his sister and let him have her because Abram was worried they'd kill him and take her from him. But then Abram shows faith in God when Lot and Abram start getting in each other's way. Abram lets Lot have first pick of the land and happily settles for second best, knowing God will provide. But then in chapter 14, we saw Abram coming to Lot's rescue when he gets captured by some kings from the east. Again, Abram shows faith in God when he declines a reward from the king of Sodom, bringing back what the kings had taken. So when we come to Genesis 15, we expect Abram's faith to remain in that upward trajectory. But the reality is, his faith is on the verge of faltering again. And it's not hard to imagine why. It's been 10 long years and he still hasn't seen God's promises come to fruition. He's still childless. The son that these promises hinge on hasn't arrived. He's acutely aware that following God hasn't made him less susceptible to sin. Other than a couple of good deeds, he hasn't really blessed the nations. And most recently, he's just provoked four kings from the east who are no doubt going to want some retribution for his actions. And not only that, he's done it all for no reward. He's not really any better off for having done it. In fact, following God doesn't seem to have made him much better off at all. He's frustrated, afraid, and beginning to doubt the promises that God made to him. Sounds like a man who desperately needs some assurance. And that's exactly what God gives him in our passage this evening. So let's look at the text and see how God reassures Abram. And as we look at this passage, I have three observations, three assurances for us as we look at what God says to Abram. And the first observation we can make is that God counts our faith as righteousness. God counts our faith as righteousness. After Abram rescues Lot and turns down a reward for his actions in chapter 14, God knows exactly what is going on in Abram's heart. God knows he is afraid and beginning to doubt again that God is for him and that God is going to deliver on his promises. He knows that Abram is wondering whether he should have just taken that reward from the king of Sodom. So what does God do when he knows Abram needs some assurance? He speaks. Notice in verse one to five that God gives Abram his word. God gives Abram his word. Look with me to verse one. After this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. After the drama of chapter 14, God, knowing his heart, addresses Abram's concerns and promises to protect him and to provide for him. But it's not really good enough for Abram. In unbelief and frustration, he vocalizes some more concerns in verses two and three. Sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless and the one who will inherit my estate is Eliezer of Damascus? You have given me no children, so a servant will be my heir. God, you haven't kept your promises. How can I believe you? Again, God's response to Abram's unbelief is to give him his word. This time, God repeats the promises he made to Abram back in chapter 12. Look with me to verse four. 
Then the word of the Lord came to him. This man will not be your heir, but a son who is your own flesh and blood will be your heir. And then again in verse five, God says, look up at the sky and count the stars. If indeed you can count them, so shall your offspring be. And what is so significant about these promises in Genesis 12 is that God is promising that from Abram will come a nation which God will use to bless the whole world. God is giving Abram his word that one day he will act to fix this broken world. One day, one of Abram's offspring will cross Satan and release the world from the grip of sin and death. God's promises reveal that he does have a rescue plan. Notice what happens next. In verse six, Abram responds with faith. Abram responds with faith. Abram believed the Lord and he credited it to him as righteousness. When he hears God's word, Abram's unbelief turns to belief and God counted it to him as righteousness. Abram, this pagan from Ur, born in sin, his biggest need was to be made right with God. And now, because of his faith in God's rescue plan, God has credited him with righteousness. Before he does anything else, God reassures Abram that his sin isn't being held against him. That's the gospel. That hasn't changed. We are justified by faith. We are made right with God by faith. The only difference is we have more of the picture. We know exactly what God has done to fix this broken world. We know who this offspring of Abram is. When we hear God's word, when we hear how Jesus Christ sacrificed his perfect life on the cross, taking upon himself the punishment for our sin and then rose from the grave, when we hear that and put our faith in him, believing in the promise of forgiveness, God credits us with righteousness. He counts us as righteous. God declares that everything is right between us and him. Think of it like this. If we put our faith in Christ, God takes our credit card bill and he cancels all that debt we have racked up by sinning against him. But not only that, he then gives us unlimited credit. The price of our sins, past, present, and future has been paid by Jesus Christ. Now before we get carried away, that doesn't mean we can sin as much as we want. We don't get to go on a spending spree with the credit card because genuine believers don't want to sin anymore. But it does mean that those who believe in Christ can have wonderful assurance that they have been made right with God. We are no longer heading for God's wrath, but because we have been credited with Christ's righteousness, we are now headed for a reward. Isn't that amazing? We have the promise of eternal life in heaven. We have assurance that our standing before God is not based on our performance, but on Christ's performance. What do we do when we doubt those promises? What do we do when we doubt that we are in right standing with God? We go back to God's word. It's God's word that takes us from unbelief to belief. When Abram begins to doubt the promises, God repeats them. He gives Abram his word again. Brothers and sisters, if you're here tonight and you're struggling in your faith, if you're struggling to believe God's promises, get back into the Bible. Keep reading God's promises. We need them repeated to us. Keep going to your growth group. Keep coming and sitting under God's word. Keep reading the Bible one-on-one -on -one with people. God's word produces faith 
and God graciously counts our faith in Christ as righteousness. Okay, so God counts our faith as righteousness. Our second observation is that God confirms his promises with a covenant. God confirms his promises with a covenant. My brother once attended a wedding where the groom woke up on the morning of his wedding and realized he had forgotten to organize a marriage license. Total disaster. The bride and groom could say all they want to each other at the front of the church, but no matter what they said, they would not be legally married unless they could arrange a wedding license in time. Racing against the clock, the groom ran to the marriage office, explained the situation, and to cut a long story short, they moved mountains and they got it all sorted in under two hours. They got it in time and the wedding went ahead as planned. When people get married, they make promises to one another. But marriage is built on more than just verbal promises. There is a really important, legally binding arrangement that the bride and a groom enter into. So when my brother's friend woke up, even though he trusted his wife wouldn't break her promises, he had no doubt her word to him at the front of the church was enough. He still knew that the actual marriage license was crucial. The marriage license confirms the promises and legally binds a bride and a groom together. We've just read that Abram believed God's promises. But then in verse 7, God promises Abram that he will take possession of the land. To which Abram replies in verse 8, Sovereign Lord, how can I know that I will gain possession of it? How can I know? Abram hasn't lost his faith somewhere between verse 6 and verse 8. This is Abram saying, I believe you, God, but can I have it in writing? Abram is asking God for something more than words, something binding that will confirm that his offspring will enter the land God has promised. Abram wants to make it official. And remarkably, even though he doesn't have to, even though he is abundantly faithful to keep his promises, for Abram's sake, God agrees and asks him to prepare a covenant. God asks Abram to prepare a covenant. God tells Abram to do something that to us seems extremely strange, doesn't it? He tells Abram, Abram in verse 9, bring me a heifer, a goat, and a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. That seems like a very odd request to us, but Abram knows exactly what God has in mind. In those days, they didn't have contracts like we would have. When a binding agreement had to be made, people cut a covenant. And what they would do is they would take some animals and cut them in two and arrange them opposite each other. Then both parties would walk between the animals to formalize the agreement. And when they walked through, they were taking the covenant curses upon themselves. So what they were saying as they walked through the animals was, if I don't keep my end of the bargain, then let me be torn apart like these animals. That was the curse. And suddenly getting out of your phone contract doesn't seem that bad. Um, but as God asks Abram to cut a covenant, we get an incredible insight into the character of God. The one who spoke the universe into existence, the almighty, all-powerful God, humbles himself into making a binding agreement with a created, sinful human being. We expect God to say, how dare you question my word? I'm God, I'm holy, I literally can't lie. I can't break my promises. 
But our God is gracious. He's loving. He's patient. He's kind and compassionate. He's slow to anger. He doesn't dismiss Abram's question as ridiculous. He moves towards Abram to reassure him. But God doesn't just cut a covenant. Even more remarkably, God takes the covenant curses upon himself. God takes the covenant curses upon himself. Look with me to verse 17. When the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking brazier with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. Again, we read this and we think, what on earth is going on here? Well, this smoking fire pot and flaming torch represent God's presence. In the same way that pillars of cloud and fire represent God in the book of Exodus. This is God passing through the animals, committing to the covenant. But where's Abram when this is going on? When's he going to walk through? Well, he's been in a deep sleep since verse 12. It's only God who passes through these divided animals and takes on the obligations, the curses of the covenant. God is saying, may I be torn apart like these animals if I break my promise. Don't miss the gravity of this. This is huge. This is the sovereign God of the universe coming down and offering to die before he would let this covenant fall apart. Before he would break his promise to Abram. Not only is God unable to lie or break his word, but to do so would physically tear him apart. It would go against his very being. For Abram, this would have been profoundly reassuring. The author of life who cannot die is saying that he will die if the covenant promise is broken. This is God giving Abram a 100% guarantee that Abram's offspring will enter the promised land. And because the fulfillment of that promise is dependent on Abram having a son, the other promises are now guaranteed as well. Abram now knows he will have a son. He knows he will be the father of a great nation who will live in the promised land. This is God guaranteeing that all the world will be blessed through Abram's offspring. Abram can be doubly reassured that one day God is going to do something to fix this broken world. Could God have revealed how gracious and loving a God he is any more vividly or profoundly than that? Well, maybe. Maybe he could have come down and taken the form of a man and walked through the animals. But hold on a second. God did do that, didn't he? Jesus Christ, the son of God, became flesh and dwelt among us. He took upon himself the curses of a new covenant. Jesus said in Matthew 26, this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. When Christ gave up his life on the cross, he sealed a new covenant in his blood. A covenant that promised that those who repent of their sin and believe in him will not perish but have eternal life. What does that mean for us when we doubt God's promises? How do we know God is for us? How do we know that we are forgiven and one day we will be with God? We look to the cross. We remember that Jesus shed his blood for us. 
God has made a new covenant with us that has been sealed with the blood of Jesus. And that covenant cannot be broken. By dying on the cross, Jesus has taken upon himself the curses of a new covenant between God and those who believe. So when we put our faith in Christ, God is satisfied that our covenant obligations have been met by Christ and we can be made right with God. Ephesians 2, verse 12 and 13 says this. You were separate from Christ, foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. We have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Like Abram, we also have the assurance of a covenant that God has made. We can know for certain that if we believe in Christ, that we will be saved. If you're here tonight and you haven't yet come to know Jesus, let me ask you this evening, are you benefiting from that covenant? Christ became a curse. He gave us life on the cross so your sins could be forgiven and you could be credited with righteousness. If you don't yet know Christ, God is calling you to repent of your sin and believe in Jesus' finished work on the cross. Come and have assurance that everything between you and God has been made right. Come and have assurance that you will not face God's judgment. Come and have assurance that you will have a home in heaven. Those are the promises we have in Christ. Okay, so God counts our faith in Christ as righteousness. God confirms his promises with a covenant. Our final observation is that God's promises are certain through trials. God's promises are certain through trials. We still haven't answered that question of what can we hold on to when something happens in our lives that makes us doubt God's promises? What can we hold on to when our faith is shaken by something we're going through? What if we don't see a promise becoming a reality? Well, in between Abram arranging the animals and God passing through them, God gave Abram some terrible news. God tells Abram that the promises will be fulfilled, but it will not be without difficulty and trials for him and his future offspring. God's intention is that when these trials come, Abram will know for certain that even though it looks like the promises are not gonna happen, that God is working for his good and he will deliver on his word. Again, two things to notice in the text. The first thing is that God's people will face trials. God's people will face trials. Look at these trials with me from verse 11 on. In verse 11, we see opposition. Then birds of prey came down on the carcasses, but Abram drove them away. Abram having to fight off birds to attack the covenant preparations is foreshadowing that there are going to be many who would oppose God's people and God's promises. There will be nations who will attack Abram's offspring, but they won't succeed in preventing God's promises. Verse 12, darkness. As the sun was setting, Abram fell into a deep sleep and a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. Darkness surrounds Abram and separates him from God's terrifying presence as God comes to ratify this covenant. 
But this darkness also foreshadows and represents the suffering that God is about to describe in detail in the next few verses. There will be a period of time where Abram's offspring will be in darkness. They won't be able to see what God is doing. It won't look as if these promises are going to happen. There is going to be a really dark period in Israel's history. Then the nature of the trials becomes a bit clearer. In verse 13, God says there is going to be a long delay before Abram's offspring will enter the land. Then the Lord said to him, Know for certain that for 400 years your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own and they will be enslaved and ill-treated there. Not only has Abram had to wait for years before before he will be given a son, his offspring are going to have to spend 400 years in slavery before they can enter the promised land. There's also death. Abram himself isn't actually going to get there. He will see death long before they enter the promised land. And we see that in verse 15. You, however, will go to your ancestors in peace and be buried at a good old age. God has something much better for the man of faith in death than he could ever receive in life. God knows exactly what lies ahead. He's telling Abram things are actually going to get much worse for him and for his offspring before they get much better. But God is reassuring Abram that despite how things will appear in the future, nothing can prevent him from accomplishing what he has promised. Sometimes in our lives it can look like God isn't coming through on his promises. We know that God has promised to protect us and to provide for us. But there are times where it doesn't feel like God is our shield or our reward. Because as God's people, we aren't immune from losing our health. We aren't immune from losing our jobs. There are times when we feel like God is so far from our situation that we doubt his goodness. There's no way he could ever come good on the promise of eternal life. Look what he's allowed to happen to me in this one. Those are times when we feel like we are surrounded by darkness. When we can't see what God is doing in a situation at all. There might even be times when we face opposition for following Christ. What do you do when you're the laughing stock of the office because you're a Christian? What do you hold on to when you're being bullied in school for your faith? What we need to take from this passage is the assurance that the trials we experience in this life don't mean that God's promises aren't still in place. In Romans 18 it says, our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Following God doesn't mean that our lives will be amazing now. No, our reward is in heaven. Like Abram, we have to face delay and even death before we enter the promised land. But our present sufferings are nothing compared to the glory that lies ahead. One day we will receive the fullness of God's promises for those who believe. The second thing to notice is that God has a purpose for our trials. God has a purpose for our trials. Please look with me to verse 16. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. Who are the Amorites? What is going on here? Well, the Amorites were the people who were living in Canaan at that time. They were the people living in the promised land. 
The reason God gives for keeping the Israelites in Egypt is that the Amorites are not ripe for judgment yet. He wants to give them more time to repent and change their ways before the Israelites come in and take over the land and destroy them. God knows that if the Israelites enter the land of Canaan too early, then they could be corrupted by the Amorites. God had a purpose for delaying his people entering the promised land. He had a purpose for their suffering and trials, even though they couldn't comprehend it or see it at the time. And what we need to see here is that sometimes God permits things to happen to us and we won't always comprehend why. We won't always see the purposes that God has for our trials. We won't always see how our trials or our suffering fits into God's plan. But that doesn't mean his promises are in doubt. We need to rest in the sovereignty of God. He is controlling history. There isn't a moment or a molecule outside of his control. When our present experiences make us doubt God's goodness, when things are so difficult in our lives that the last thing we want to do is come to God, when we don't want to pray or read God's word, we need to remember that God is always working for our ultimate good. He always has his reasons for our suffering, even though we can't always see it. And that is something we see most clearly in the life of the Lord Jesus. Jesus suffered immensely. He was so anxious about the suffering that lay before him that he came to the point of sweating blood. But God had a purpose for his suffering. God would use it to bring about redemption and forgiveness for countless people. God used Christ's suffering to redeem to himself a people who would spend eternity with him in the new creation. So when you keep struggling time and time again with that sin or temptation and you say, God, you've promised me your spirit. You've promised to help me fight sin. Why do I keep doing this? Don't lose hope. God has a purpose for our trials. The promise still stands. One day you will no longer have to put up with that sin in your life. Or when you just can't help but be anxious about the future and what lies ahead, don't lose sight of God's promises. He is working for our ultimate good. Be assured that there is glory ahead for those who have faith in Jesus Christ. Christian, know for certain that God's promises will stand through trials. Just as we come to a close tonight, maybe there's one thing from this passage you could take away from tonight and remember. Maybe you have been doubting God's promises. We all have times when we struggle to keep going on in our faith. Remember that God has given us his word. Remember that through the power of his spirit, God uses his word to produce faith in our hearts. Even though sometimes it can be the last thing you want to do, don't give up reading God's promises. Keep coming and sitting under God's word. Maybe you're going through something really hard at the minute. Maybe you're struggling to believe that God really has your best interests at heart. Remember that our trials are not God's denials. Although in this life we cry, how long, O Lord? We have assurance in the blood of Jesus that one day we will walk in the fullness of his promises. One day our faith will be sight. We will live in the land promised to us, in the presence of God forever. Maybe you're here tonight and you don't yet know Jesus. 
Maybe you've been thinking about following Jesus for a while, but you haven't yet put your faith in him. I have to tell you that just like there was a day when the sin of the Amorites reached its full measure, there will be a day when the sins of this world will reach their full measure. God's patience will eventually run out. One day Christ will return to judge the sins of this world. Please don't presume that God's patience will last forever. It won't. Those who haven't put their trust in Christ, those who are not right with him, will have to pay the price for their sin. Instead of eternal life, they will go to the place of everlasting torment. Hear his word, repent of your sin, and put your faith in Christ. Because when you do so, God promises to count you as righteous. You're kept secure by a covenant that Jesus has sealed with his own blood on the cross, shed for you and for me. Let's pray.